I was sitting at a coffee shop with a guy in his early 20s. He'd been around some churches before, but he was new to our church. And he wanted to talk about what we believed. So as we drank our coffee and went back and forth, I started sharing some things. And, and I could tell that, that there was some level of reservation in him. But the more that we talked, I was confused because he kept agreeing with everything I was saying. I kept waiting for the pushback for him to say, well, now hold on for a second because I'm not sure I believe, but it just didn't come. And the longer we went, finally, he cut through the conversation and said, look, I really don't question God's existence or anything about Jesus, but he paused. He leaned in and he said, I guess I've just never really understood the point of the cross. Was this just God's big publicity stunt? I'd never heard a question like that. And I would love to be able to say that I immediately had this really well-worded answer, but instead I kind of muddled through something that I didn't feel did justice to his question. And I walked away that day replaying that question in my mind. I don't understand the point of the cross. Was this just God's big publicity stunt? Here was someone who had been around church for quite a long time, and yet arguably the most important event in the history of our faith was something that he had questions about. And the more I reflected, here is what I believe the question was underneath the question he asked. Was God just sending a message through the cross, or did something actually happen? Was this just the divine's way of getting our attention, or did Jesus accomplish anything through his crucifixion? Now, the questions like that are really at the heart of our faith, and it's why we are spending these four weeks on the cross. I'm so glad that you're with us, whether you are live at one of our campuses or online, and wherever you are listening from, I'd ask you to, to consider, how would you have answered that question? I think that if someone asked the average churchgoer, what happened on the cross? They might, they might say, well, Jesus died for our sins, most generically. If they tried to say it a different way, they might say something like, Jesus, Jesus died in our place. Or maybe if they knew the Bible a little bit, um, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Or maybe even Jesus defeated sin on the cross. Now, I, I think that each of those claims is true. But the thing that I wrestle with is, for many of us, if we were pressed to explain more about those short statements, I think maybe like me at that coffee shop, we might muddle through some kind of answer. And so what I want to do today, what I hope to do, is to, is to wrestle with the most common ways that we talk about what happened on the cross because the Christian claim is, in fact, that something did happen. If you're with us for the first time, I'm so glad that you're here. Last week when we started this series, we talked about what the earliest Christians called what was of first importance, which is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that on the third day He rose from the grave. So the announcement of the Christian faith is about an event that took place in history which has changed everything. And yet, sometimes when we try to explain what was it that actually happened on that cross, we struggle. 
So what I want to do is, is I want to help understand in the scheme of God's amazing plot line of redemption, in God's story, what happened on the cross? And then what does that mean for my story? So we're going to begin with this. Uh, before, before I actually uh, dive in, I want, I want to make one, one quick uh, humble caveat. The Bible talks in so many different ways and metaphors about what happened through Jesus' crucifixion that it's inevitable in about a half-hour message, I'm going to leave some stuff out. In fact, I might even leave a lot out. And so I want, I want you uh, to just know and hear that, that I'm trying to come to this as humbly as possible uh, when it comes to so many different ways that you could talk about what happened on the cross. But to help give color and context to the most common ways that we talk about it, let's begin with this one. Jesus was our sacrifice. As soon as Jesus' ministry began, he began to, to be connected to the idea of sacrifice. In the Gospel of John, there's a, a forerunner to Jesus, a prophet named John the Baptist, who sees him and says in John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, the Apostle Peter uses this same kind of language about Jesus when he's writing to some Christians. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now the language of Jesus as a lamb used both when he was alive, before the cross, and after his resurrection, uh, it's something that maybe for some of us makes us a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, if you're newer to faith, the idea of singing about Jesus' blood, I don't blame you if, that, if that's a little disturbing. And so in God's story, where is this coming from? Well, God called a man named Abram to leave his home and his community and go out and through the line of Abram, later named Abraham, which means father of many nations, God would develop a people for himself, the chosen people, Israel. And through these people, God promised Abram, he would bless all of the nations. Well, we followed the story of Israel inside the, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. If you're a member of our church earlier this spring, you may even remember we, we looked at one famous time when Israel was enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And as a slave nation, they cried out for someone to rescue them. And God raised up a man named Moses and began to work to rescue the people. And one of the ways that he was going to bring judgment on Egypt in order to set his people free included when he would bring death to the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And what God told the Israelite people to do was to find a male lamb without blemish or defect and to kill it and to take its blood and paint it on the doorpost of their houses. Now, our senior teaching minister uh, already preached an incredible message on this, so I'm only going to re-preach one tiny little point. Through the blood of the sacrifice, the people were saved. Because the blood of the Lamb marked them, their deliverance was secured. Their, they were protected from death, which would pass over them. 
The Israelite people remember this through the feast of Passover. And it is no coincidence that Jesus was at a Passover festival meal with his disciples when he instituted what we call communion. And in Matthew 26, Jesus looked at his followers at this meal that was about, uh, about how the blood of the lamb had protected the people. And Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in God's story, this idea of Passover is part of what Jesus grabs onto. But what's interesting is that Jesus introduces a concept that didn't have anything to do with Passover. That the blood was tied to forgiveness of sins. In order to understand that, we've got to look at an entire different part of God's story. It's that after deliverance, out in the wilderness, God, with his people Israel, begins to teach and show them what it means to live as his people and to represent him to the world. And part of how they were going to live was with a rhythm of sacrifice. In fact, God set up an entire sacrificial system, which you can read about in the Old Testament law, the first five books, and especially in the book of Leviticus. And often it would be with some animal without blemish or defect, often in fact a lamb, who would be sacrificed by the priests on behalf of the people. Now let's pause for just a second and ask the obvious question. Why couldn't God just do away with sacrifice for the Israelite people? Like, what was, what was the point? Why did there need to be a sacrifice? And admittedly, that is a simple question with a complicated answer. Because on the one hand, God's God. And God, I guess, absolutely could decide, I'm just going to forgive. Just wave his divine hand and say, you're forgiven. But let's wrestle with this. God's God. And he said that the sacrifice was necessary. And I think that's because God, God knew sin is never without consequences. See, to sin is to turn away from, from what God originally intended for humanity. To bear his image, to represent him to the world. That's what God wants not only for his chosen people Israel, but would eventually want for the entire world to experience life with him and represent him and his love to the world. To bring about flourishing. And yet when sin entered the world, sin leads to death. And the Israelites saw this over and over and over again because through the sacrificial system, they saw that there was some sacrifice that God required for every sin that was committed. And perhaps the most important sacrifice for Israel happened once a year on what was called Yom Kippur. It's still remembered by many Jews today and known as the Day of Atonement. Remembering how the high priest, this one person, would go into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and there the high priest would offer sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of all the people. Well, after Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, his disciples start talking about him, not only as the lamb who had no blemish or defect, but as the perfect high priest. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews. Such a high priest, Jesus, truly meets our need. Why? 
Because he's one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. If you're live, read these next three words with me. Once for all when he offered himself. See, Jesus was the sinless, spotless lamb who perfectly represented God to the world because Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus then becomes not only our high priest, the one who would offer our perfect sacrifice, but he himself would be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that there's no more need for sacrifice. Every other form of sacrifice, the New Testament kind of says basically, is that what he was doing was essentially spiritually kicking the guilt can down the road. But when Jesus went to the cross, what happened was that he was the perfect sacrifice and his blood has perfectly won forgiveness for sins for everyone who puts their faith in him. That is God's story. And now here's how it intersects with your story and my story. Jesus was our sacrifice, and that means my guilt is gone. This is the good news of the gospel proclaimed that without the cross, without Jesus as our sacrifice, we would not have this perfect forgiveness of sins. This is how the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Somebody needs to hear this. God did not begrudgingly send his son as a sacrifice for you. This was out of the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Jesus Jesus didn't go kind of begrudgingly and not, not, not willing to, but in obedience and love, Jesus, God in the flesh, was our sacrifice because of his lavish love for us. And through that lavish love, that sacrifice on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, there is forgiveness for sins and your guilt is gone if you are in Christ. So that means inside of church, one of the sad things about church is that often church culture is just another way of saying a guilt culture. And so sometimes people come in and, man, like immediately we have kind of this guilt complex at church, spiritual imposter syndrome where we're just waiting to get found out. And we're, we're, we're afraid. We try and cover up. We, we lie. We don't want to get too close to anybody and, 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 and get exposed. And here's what you need to understand. The cross of Christ has said there's no more guilt, so you don't need to walk around with that guilt complex. In Christ, all of us who are all sinners, if we're in Christ, our guilt has been removed. And so, like Romans 8.1, we can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he was the Lamb of God who took away not only the sins of Israel, but all of the world. He is our perfect, sinless sacrifice, and our guilt is gone through his death on the cross. That's what it means to say Jesus was our sacrifice. All right, next up. Jesus died in our place. So I might argue that this is one of the most common ways that we talk about what Jesus did on the cross. And the the idea, this, this concept is referred to often as substitution. 
Meaning somebody steps in and, and discharges the responsibilities of another. That just the way that when a teacher is out, they need a substitute to come in and teach in their place. Or when a player is wounded or tired and the coach needs to sub in someone else, we understand this concept easily enough. So let's locate it in God's story. I want to show you in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God sent these messengers over and over again because Israel, though they had been set apart by God, continued to fail to bear his image well. And so they sinned. And they experienced the consequences and the curse of sin. And over and over again, God would go and speak to his people through messengers known as the prophets. And one particular prophet, the prophet Isaiah, talked not only about a redeemer, who the Jews called the Messiah, or in Greek that would be the Christ. Just that's When we call Jesus Christ, it's really Jesus the Christ, just so you know. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is this, this title synonymous with and the same it's the greek for messiah that's the jewish word but this was this promised redeemer and isaiah talked about this individual but at the same time isaiah later talks about a different figure that is often referred to as the suffering servant listen to these words in isaiah 53 surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'd encourage you, go, go read all of Isaiah 53 later today and see this language of the one for the many. But here's the thing. The Israelites, as they heard these promises from the prophets, in their mind, these were two different individuals. There was no person who could be both the Messiah and the suffering servant. And part of the scandal of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is that he would become both. And as the suffering servant, God would take our place, carry our iniquity. Now, this is language that some, I mean, it makes us feel uncomfortable. The idea that, that Jesus faced the punishment we deserve, which implies we deserve some kind of judgment. But the gospel writers make this very plain, especially the gospel of Luke. There's this theme in Luke of the innocent in the place of the guilty that's unmistakable. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on trial. The religious, Judas, one of his followers has betrayed him. The religious leaders have come and taken him, and they're putting him through a quick mock trial. But they also, because they're over Roman rule, have to send him in front of the governor, the Roman governor, Pilate. And when Pilate starts to interview and interrogate the charges against Jesus, very quickly Pilate realizes this man is innocent. The gospel writer goes out of his way to have this repeated multiple times. When Pilate says, I found no charge against him. He's done nothing wrong. This man is innocent. It's, it's repeated over and over. And so then Pilate tries to take advantage of a cultural custom around the Feast of Passover, which was to set one prisoner free. So the crowd is given two options. 
innocent Jesus, who's done nothing wrong according to the Roman governor, and Barabbas, who is a convicted insurrectionist and murderer. Seems like a pretty easy choice of who you want back on the streets in your neighborhood. But the crowds cry out for Barabbas, the murderer, to be released. And they continue to demand that innocent Jesus be crucified. Pilate tries to argue with the crowd. They go back and forth a couple times. And then finally, in verse 22, for the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Can we lay it on any thicker here? Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Barabbas, the guilty one, goes free. Jesus, the innocent one, goes to the cross. If you are a Christian, you're Barabbas. Jesus has taken your place, faced the punishment you deserve, that I deserve. To quote author John Stott, the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. This is where God's story syncs up and intersects with my story. Jesus died in our place, and what that means for my story is that my life is spared. Every Christian lives with the reality that Jesus has saved and spared our lives because on the cross, what happened was Jesus substituted in and faced the judgment that was warranted on every sinner. Now again, this, this language makes us uncomfortable. But we need, to, we need to clarify something and make this really clear. Jesus, as God in the flesh, keeps pronouncing on the Israelite people judgment in the Gospels. Judgment on the religious leaders who were corrupt. Judgment on so many people who didn't recognize him and were a faithless generation. Jesus says that destruction is coming. Why? Because sin leads to death. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he faces the judgment Israel deserved after having just pronounced it on them. This, this is the mind-boggling scandal of the gospel that Jesus the judge who speaks judgment over is also the one who substitutes in and goes ahead of us and takes our guilty place. This is what this means. Romans 5 says that very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's where this really hits home. I think that for so many of us, we think that if we were fully known, we couldn't be fully loved. 
that if the people around us, no matter how close they are to us, if they fully knew everything that we've done, every thought we've had, every vengeful, angry, selfish inclination or intention that we've operated in, if we were fully known, there's no way we could be fully loved. And yet what we see in God coming to earth is that God fully knew every single one of us, every sin we would commit, and yet God fully loved us, which is why he took our place on the cross, facing the judgment that our sin deserves. And yet through what Jesus did on the cross, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's Romans 8. That's what Jesus did to face the punishment and to, and to do this in a miraculous way so that he would be the suffering servant who would take on the iniquity. He would also be the Messiah who would go ahead of Israel and do what they could not to bring redemption. And so when we say Jesus died in our place, this is really what we mean. He was the substitute for Barabbas and for you and for me. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he died in our place. Next up. Jesus defeated sin. Now, admittedly, this is one that we hear less often, but it is no less important. So let's get our bearings again in God's story. What does it mean to say Jesus defeated sin? Well, we're going to have to back up before Israel, before Abram, before everything. God created the world. And when he created the world, set up this Utopia, this garden, this Eden where men and women could live. And when God made the first man, the first woman, they were made, Genesis says, in his image. This is one of the things that sets humanity apart from every other species. That we were made in a unique way, bearing God's image, meant to go throughout the world and represent him and bring flourishing and glorify him because all throughout the world there would be image bearers doing good, enjoying the good of creation, and all of this would glorify God. But these image bearers failed to correctly bear the image and trust what God wanted done. And sin entered the world. It's recorded in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, are deceived and eat from the one tree God asked them not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when God discovers this, as sin leads to death, God begins to announce the consequences of what has taken place. And he pronounces this over Adam and also over Eve, but he also pronounces this over this serpent which deceived them. And here's one of the things that God says to the serpent in this prophetic moment. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now for the rest of the Bible, for the rest of God's story, Satan keeps showing up. This deceiver, this accuser, this enemy, this, this personal manifestation of evil who brings about death and destruction and deception and bondage in our lives. Now, I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say next. 
Satan is called the accuser, which I believe means one of the main ways, one of the main weapons he has against sinful humanity is to hold up our sin and to shame us with it, to accuse us with it, to heap guilt on us. But because Jesus died on the cross, we're forgiven if we're in Christ. Our guilt is gone. There's no condemnation. And if there is no condemnation, that means that the accuser has lost one of his best weapons against us. He can't accuse or bind us like he could before because the blood of Jesus has covered our guilt because Jesus took our place. What that means is that on the cross, the heel of God was struck, but on the cross, the head of Satan was crushed. That's what Jesus did on the cross so that Satan has no more the same power that he did. And though the war between good and evil is not over yet, that's when Jesus comes back to set all things right and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we know as Christians the decisive battle has already been won because it was won on the cross. That's not just a message God was sending. That's something Jesus did to win for us a new kind of freedom and to shame these powers. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says this. Colossians 2. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is one of the victories of God. And now, if we're in Christ, we're free. This is, this is part of what this means. Why? Because, because Jesus put to death the old self, our old sin. See, here's something we've, we've got to understand. It's not only that sin is, is an action we commit. Sin is a power we're under, a force at work to, to bring death and bondage into our lives which is why the New Testament talks about our lives being ruled by sin. These aren't just bad habits or mistakes. This is a force, a power that holds something over us. But when Jesus died on the cross, sin's power was broken because sin condemned in the flesh was put to death. Look at this, Romans 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's where God's story changes my story forever because if Jesus defeated sin, that means my freedom is won. That we don't have to walk around tiptoeing around and wondering, am I really okay with God? No, God has redeemed us. He's bought us back. Even that language in Romans 6 is this slave market language of someone who's in bondage who has been purchased into freedom. This is what Jesus has done for us. And see, this is, man, if I could get back to that coffee shop and sit down with that young man, this is where I'd want to say, do you see it now? Do you see this wasn't just a message God was sending, but that Jesus became the once-for-all sacrifice for us? That's what he accomplished as the sinless Lamb of God on the cross. 
Do you see how Jesus died in your place that through your sin judgment was warranted and God, the same God who spoke that judgment over you, went ahead of you and took your place on the cross to pay for your sin? Do you see how Jesus not only accomplished that, but that through his death on the cross, he has offered and won for you a freedom that you could never get on your own? This is what Jesus has done to break the power of sin. He's not just sending a message. Jesus did things on the cross we could never do for ourselves, which is why as Christians we come back again and again and again to the beautiful, self-giving, sacrificial, power-breaking love of the cross of Jesus Christ. So why did, why did God do all of this? Was it just to accomplish those things? No, the reason behind the reason is because of God's incredible love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That in the gospel of John's language, Jesus loved them to the end. In love, this is what Jesus did. And yes, he has captured the world's attention. I don't think it's a publicity stunt, but I do think through the cross, God has captivated our attention through this incredible self-giving love. And this, this should be for us the greatest stress test of our faith, that if God was willing to go that far. So think of it this way. I remember uh, just a while back being on vacation with my family, and, and my son, we, he wanted to go on this, this uh, water slide that, that, uh, that was at this little uh, pool we were at, but it was a higher slide. It was like almost maybe over a story high. And, and so we'd walk up the stairs together, but you had to cross a suspension bridge to get to this slide. And as soon as my, my son Finn stepped out and felt how shaky that little rope suspension, suspension bridge was, he, he kind of freaked out. He backed up and stayed at the stairs. And we watched other kids walk across, and, you know, he, he's, he's like watching, and, but he's still so worried about it. He's like just not, he's not convinced that he's not about to tumble to his death. So I go out there, and I, I get right in the middle, and I look at him. I'm like, it's okay. And I start jumping around. I'm moving. I look like a fool up there trying to convince him. And finally, like, it's like I can see the wheels turning in his, in his little toddler brain where he's like, okay, dad's, like, huge compared to me. And so if his, like, pudgy dad bod can be held up by this bridge, I'm safe. And so he starts to kind of walk out. And, like, that was he needed the stress test to realize it was safe. It was enough. He would be okay. Now think about this for just a second. When we look at the cross of Christ, at what Jesus did for us, if God was willing to go that far to save us, no matter what we face, God it will be with us. He will be enough. He's already stress-tested it. He's already shown us, I'm willing to go this far in my love to save you, to redeem you. I'm willing to take your place to face the judgment you deserve. I'm willing to die a gruesome death on a cross. And I rose from the grave so we know death doesn't have the last word. I've stress-tested it for you. Now run with me in freedom in my kingdom. This is what God wants to communicate to you and to me through the cross. And so I want to finish with this, this passage that has some of this idea of, man, if God's done this, we can trust him for anything. It's the end of Romans chapter 8. And here's what I want to do live at all of our campuses. And I'd invite those who are, who are watching online, if they're in a spot where they're able to, to, to stand for the reading of God's word, of this, this declaration of what God has done for us in Christ. 
So live at all of our campuses, would you stand for this reading? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the stress test. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And would you read this last section with me? For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the declaration. Would you bow with me? Oh, Jesus, we praise you. You are the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who has won forgiveness for us and removed our guilt. You are the suffering servant who lovingly took our place, the innocent one, when we were guilty and faced our judgment. You are the victorious one who has triumphed over sin and Satan and death. You are the victor. Lord, would you help us see again that all of this runs in the current of your love for us. And if you were willing to do all of this, Lord, we can trust you today and tomorrow and for eternity. Lead us and guide us, we pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.